Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum. We range from center-left to center-right. I'm Mona Charon, syndicated columnist and policy editor at The Bulwark, and I'm joined by our regulars, Bill Galston of the Brookings Institution and the Wall Street Journal, and Damon Linker, who writes the Substack newsletter, Notes from the Middle Ground. Linda Chavez is off this week, but The Bulwark's Kathy Young has kindly agreed to sit in for her, and our special guest is Noah Smith, who writes the Substack newsletter, No Opinion. Welcome, one and all. Noah, I am so glad that we scheduled to have you here this week, even though it's a little bit of serendipity. But the fact is, looking at the front pages this morning, what do we see? Inflation down to 3%. The elusive soft landing for the economy seems to be more than a wish, right? Yes, I don't want to jinx it, knock on wood, but it looks like we're doing amazingly well. You know, employment is still extremely robust, incredibly good labor market, and yet inflation down. You know, it's not all the way back down to 2%, but it's pretty close, and a lot of measures are actually pretty close right now. So I'd say that we're definitely out of the danger zone in terms of inflation, and there's always the possibility that the interest rate hikes that we've done will induce a recession a year from now or something like that. There'll be this delayed reaction effect. So, of course, we have to knock on wood and not count our chickens and blah, blah, blah. But things are looking really good right now. So can you think of examples of uh, or give us some examples of when there's been a delayed reaction like that? I mean, that just seems like an awfully long delay of a whole year for a recession to strike, and especially when expectations, consumer expectations about future inflation seem to be in check. Well, the standard example people give is actually the Volcker recession. So we started raising rates in the late 70s, and then somewhere around a year and a half to two years after we really started raising rates aggressively, we got the Volcker recession of uh, 1980, which was the smaller one. And then we kept raising rates. And then a couple of years later, we got the second Volcker recession, which was the bigger one. And so that sort of convinced a lot of people that interest rate hikes will take a year and a half to two years to have an effect. But then when you look overall at the data and look at like a whole bunch of countries and a whole bunch of time periods, and you see that usually within six months, you can start to see an effect from interest rate hikes. And I think that that pretty much lines up with what we saw here. You know, they started hiking interest rates in beginning of 2022. And then you can start to see inflation begin to subside around summer of 2022. But that also lines up with when oil prices started to fall. So welcome to macroeconomics. <laughs> it's very difficult to tell. What causes what? Everything happens at the same time. But, you know, the timing is right, given what we know from the academic literature, for the interest rate hikes to already have an effect. But there are people out there who claim it takes two years and that we raised rates too much and it's going to push us into recession. There's nothing we can really do about that but wait and see. But for now, things are looking great. Okay. So, Bill Galston, this all has political implications, of course. And uh, one of the things that we know from vast experience is that it is very hard to tell voters that they are better off than they think they are. But this accumulation of good news is just really striking. I mean, I think you could count, you know, on the fingers on one hand, the number of analysts who thought that we'd be able to tackle inflation without a really nasty recession. Now, as Noah points out, maybe that's still on the horizon. 
But I don't think most people even thought we'd be where we are right now in terms of getting inflation under control. So tell us your view of the political implications. I'll get to that. But before I do, let me offer a mild dissent. I don't disagree with anything that's been said so far. But it's worth remembering that the Federal Reserve Board focuses on what it calls core inflation rather than headline inflation. And core inflation is what you get when you exclude food and energy prices. Core inflation peaked not at 9%, but at 6.6%. Core inflation now stands at 4.8%. So from the standpoint of the indicators that the Fed looks to as long-term trends, as opposed to the noise produced by volatile prices, we still have a way to go. And the progress towards price stability, which they define as 2%, has been modest. So I would hesitate to draw any enthusiastic conclusions from the data that we've seen so far. In addition, Real interest rates, that is the interest rate minus the rate of inflation, did not turn positive until about three months ago. Before that, it was still possible to borrow money and pay back less in real inflation-adjusted dollars. So that's another reason for caution. Here's the third reason for caution. We went through about two years in which wage increases trailed inflationary increases month by month, 24, 25 consecutive months. That has turned around in the past two months. And so this gets us now to the political impact. Public opinion about the economy is a lagging indicator, and it takes a fair amount of time of good news to begin to replace the entrenched memory of bad news. If these trends continue over the next year, President Biden is going to be in much stronger shape than he is now. But that is, in my judgment, and if. So I'm in Larry David land right now. Curb your enthusiasm and just await future events. Kathy Young, let me try this out on you. Bill is not enthusiastic. He wants to curb his enthusiasm. Okay. But consider this. One other thing that happened within the last month that has an impact on the future of inflation is the Supreme Court ruling saying that the student loan forgiveness program is unlawful because the president did not have the authority under the statute. So many people believed that the student loan forgiveness was itself tremendously inflationary. And now that has been removed, even though it obviously is not welcomed by the administration and they oppose this Supreme Court ruling, but still it's kind of a favor to them and potentially a favor to the fight against inflation. Well, that is richly ironic, isn't it? (laughs) Uh, I hadn't thought of that, but yeah, that is interesting. I think that may very well be the case. Yeah. Okay. Do you have views about whether we're being too optimistic about the economy at this moment or not? I agree, actually, with much of what Bill just said. I do think that there are reasons to be cautious and that it's a lagging indicator. I also kind of feel like maybe it's just an effect of being on Twitter, that cultural 
issues and yeah, cultural conflicts these days is almost have a more of a significance than economic factors. So I'm really not sure that it's the economy stupid still holds. But right, although there's no question that if you are in the midst of a recession and you're seeking re-election, that's not good. No matter how much cultural issues have come to the fore in our politics. Yeah, no, 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 I agree, and I mean, I do think that is potentially good news for uh, for Joe Biden. So, since I do, under the current circumstances, want him to win, not that I like everything he's doing, but I do think that he's the best option, and. So I am also cautiously optimistic, fingers crossed. And yeah, it will be really ironic if the Supreme Court, as it were, kind of gives them a helping hand, so to speak. So yeah. <laughs> so Damon, you're welcome to comment on anything you've heard, but I would also want to add into our mix here when we're considering the impact of the economic news that Joe Biden had an extraordinarily good run of news this week. We have seen, for example, a very successful summit in Vilnius, which coincided with the decision by Turkey to drop its objections. So Sweden will be joining, unless there's another roadblock, will be joining the NATO alliance on the border, which is also thought to be a vulnerable place for Biden. Not only has the threatened surge not happened, but In fact, border crossings are way down. They're as low as they've been since February of 2021, which is just a few weeks after Biden took office. So that is in his favor. The murder rate is falling. You know, from an objective standpoint, things are going pretty well for Biden. Yeah, it's dawn in America. And uh, (laughs) maybe a year from now, it'll be morning. We'll see. (laughs) On the whole, I think... The significance of all this is not that, you know, Biden is going to become Reagan in 84 and sweep 49 states or something like that a year or so from now. But what it does is it's taking off the agenda, the series of issues that you just recounted with foreign policy, immigration policy, crime, the economy. So you put all that together, and what you're doing is taking away headlines that Republicans can point to to say, look, in our shared reality, he's not doing a good job. This will not have much of an effect on how diehard Republican voters end up casting ballots in November of of 2024, because, you know, if you look at public opinion polling of perceptions of the economy, for instance, there's always been some degree of swing between who's the president. So if there's a Democrat in the White House, Democrats tend to think things are pretty good and Republicans are inclined to think they're not so good. And then it reverses when there's a Republican in the White House. But this has intensified a lot, especially among Republicans when there's a Democrat in the White House in recent cycles, such that I saw just recently a poll showing that only 18% of Republicans think the economy is doing well right now, despite 
the slowly building list of good news. So it's unlikely that many Republicans are going to be convinced to switch to Biden. But when it comes to swing voters, independent voters, Democrats who like but don't love Biden and might be on election day pondering, should I bother to get in the car and drive to the polling place or not? Those people, I think Biden is in a much stronger position to keep them on sides, get them to show up, to vote for him. If Republicans are more talking to themselves about how bad they just know Biden is, rather than being able to point to, again, news stories showing that, look, objectively speaking, he's not doing well, the economy isn't doing well, crime, immigration, all these things are a mess, and Biden deserves the blame. So for all of those reasons, I think this has to be seen as good news. We're still quite a bit out from just general election in 2024. So a lot can happen between now and then. But if you're Biden and you're attached to his White House or his campaign, you have to be uh, pretty pleased with how things are looking heading in to this last 16 or so months before the big vote. So yeah, I mean, I'm encouraged, like I think pretty much everyone on this podcast, whether we're Democrats or former Republicans or independents in general tend to want him to do well as long as the option is Trump or Trump light alternative. So I'm cheered by the good news. Noah, you had uh, a couple of recent pieces that I recommend to people. One is where you went through the various parties and who was right and who turned out not to be right in their inflation predictions. So that was really fun. Recommend that reading. But uh, you also had a piece about reasons for optimism in general. We have a little bit more time in this segment, so I'd love to hear you talk about that a little bit, about some of the things you feel good about right now, about the state of the country. Well, I mean, you know, we've come off of this period of unrest in American society, and I, I, to some degree, we're still in it, right? But the mid and late 2010s, all the way up through 2020 and beginning of 2021, were this very turbulent time in America politically, and I think that this has caused a lot of people to become essentially doomers. They think... America is collapsing, dying empire. You see all these tweets from people like Jack Dorsey. I don't know, whatever. Mm -hmm. And it's just wrong. The narrative is wrong. I mean, you know, America certainly has tons of problems. And I'm happy that we've been able to uncover those problems and see what those are. Most importantly, our difficulties in actually building anything. That is our biggest problem. And I think people have now zeroed in on that and seen it. But a lot of people are still in catastrophizing mode. A lot of people are still in this weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth kind of mode. It's inaccurate. It's gone too far. It just doesn't see the reality of where America is today. And we see a country with a strong macroeconomy that's been able to ramp up factory construction really, really quickly. It's really interesting. You know, we've seen these two big industrial policy bills, the Inflation Reduction Act and the CHIPS Act. And we've seen in the categories of green energy and semiconductors, we've seen this massive factory construction boom. Real factory construction spending has doubled and is at multi-decade highs right now, almost overnight. And in addition, we're seeing inequality by some measures, not all, but by some measures start to inch down. Wealth inequality inching down. We've seen wage inequality going down because the workers at the bottom have gained the most from this unprecedentedly robust economic expansion. And yeah, there's inflation, which has hurt the real incomes of the middle class. And a lot of people are mad about that, and I understand it. But at the same time, 
workers at the bottom of the distribution are gaining in ways that they haven't gained in living memory, or at least my living memory. <laughs> if you remember the, the 60s, then maybe not. But essentially, economically, we're seeing all this stuff. And then militarily, Russia has sort of been exposed as a lot weaker and less stable than people thought. And the United States has been pretty effective in pushing back against them in Ukraine. The United States has been pretty effective at building up its alliances and quasi-alliances in Asia to sort of start to balance out China there. And, you know, we've seen a lot of other indications of high state capacity over the last few years. The vaccine effort was just amazing. And when things work amazingly in America, we ignore them. We take them for granted. No one remembers now how in early 2021, all the people who knew about biotech and drug development were saying, oh my God, we're not going to be able to get these vaccines out in time. There's all these bottlenecks. We're not going to be able to do it. And we did it very quickly, very easily rolled the vaccine out to everyone who wanted the vaccine. And the only reason we didn't fully vaccinate everybody was because of the anti-vax movement. And uh, what can you do about that? But in terms of American state capacity, that was really quite remarkable. And we've continued to see private economic, innovative capacity from the United States in AI, of course, but you've also seen in biotech, in just a number of different fields. And then also you've seen that America's economic dominance of key choke points has been greater than people thought. So the semiconductor export controls were a much more vigorous pushback against China's attempts to take away all our key industries than people thought. It was much more vigorous, and then it's been pretty effective so far. So in all these fronts, you see America being a lot more effective than people thought. And you also see us being more stable than people thought because we've basically thrown the January 6th people in jail, I guess except for Trump himself, but maybe that's coming. But we didn't let that one slide. We didn't have a division in the military like lots of people thought. And looking at a country like Russia, nothing like that is going to happen here. And so America has a lot of work to do. We have a lot of big problems, but I'm just more optimistic than a lot of people are. Well, thank you for that. I would just add one little thing that I happen to have read in today's paper. A scientist at Purdue University has developed a special paint that reflects something like 98% of uh, UV radiation back out into space, which is a huge breakthrough for climate if it works. And, you know, it's just one more thing where... The U.S., our capacity for ingenuity and invention serves us and arguably the planet well. All right, let's turn now to a threat to all of the foregoing, <laughs> because I want to talk a little bit about third parties. We are seeing stories that, for example, Joe Manchin, the Democratic senator from West Virginia, a state that went for Trump by about, you know, 90 or whatever. But in any case, he is going to New Hampshire next week to do a forum hosted by No Labels. And also in attendance will be Joseph Lieberman, former senator, former North Carolina Governor Pat McCrory, former Congressman Fred Upton, and former Congressman Joe Cunningham. All people who, you know, two Democrats, two Republicans, but everybody, you know, is sort of more in the center of the political spectrum. And, you know, nobody understands more than people who participate in this podcast the appeal of moderation. But this is arguably very dangerous in a year, 2024, when we still face the threat of the, you know, orange lunatic being returned to office. And it isn't just no labels, it's also 
Cornell West running on the Green Party and People's Party ticket. So I'm going to turn first to you, Bill Galston. You were initially involved with No Labels, but you've since broken with them over this. So one thing I want to tee this up a little bit is No Labels has promised to end its efforts if polling shows that, quote, Biden is way, way out ahead against Trump next spring. Bill, isn't the problem that it could be very close and therefore they could act as spoiler? I mean, if Biden is way ahead, they're irrelevant anyway. (laughs) As some of the listeners to this podcast know, I was present at the creation of the labels 13 years ago. And I worked hard over that period to promote the core mission of the organization, which was to get the two major parties to cooperate more frequently and effectively to pursue the common good of the country as the American people defined the common good of the country. But I drew the line when it came to mounting an independent bipartisan ticket in 2024, because I feared that such a ticket would draw a lot more from potential Biden supporters than from potential Trump supporters. And recently, a very well-regarded Republican-leaning firm by the name of Echelon Insights did a survey that added fuel to my fears because it turned out that when you added a third option to the candidates of the two major parties, uh, that third option had the effect of turning a narrow Biden victory into a narrow Trump victory. The unnamed independent bipartisan ticket got 13% of the vote, which is about in line with my estimates of the potential for such a ticket. Interestingly, when you substituted the name of an actual person, namely former Maryland Governor Larry Hogan, for the generic third option, support fell by more than half, but it was still enough to transform a Biden victory into a tie, which in the Electoral College would lead to a Trump victory. At roughly the same time, another group Data for Progress, a Democratic-leaning organization, became the first to test Cornell West's potential appeal. And West scored 4%, which was alarmingly high because most of it would come out of Biden's hide. And it was plenty to transform a narrow victory into a defeat for the incumbent president which led me to write an article, which I believe was just posted on the Brookings website, speculating on the structural similarities between the 2024 presidential race and Harry Truman's race against Tom Dewey in 1948, where Truman was also faced with breakaways from the Democratic Party on both the left and the right. Truman managed to prevail with less than 50% of the vote because at that point, the balance of power in the country strongly favored the Democratic Party. That's not true anymore. It's more like even Stephen. And I do not believe that Joe Biden can survive breakaways on both the left and the right unless his standing with the American people improves considerably over the next 12 months. So bottom line, I'm worried. But of course, 
my friends say that I'm worried about everything habitually. So I changed now. <laughs> yeah, right. Join the club. But Bill, I just want to nail down one thing that because when we discussed this a uh, few weeks back, you made a point I really would love for you to just reiterate. And namely, you said when you look at the two parties, there is a lot more range in the Democratic Party than there is in the Republican Party. Namely, more Democrats say that they would be open to voting third party than Republicans do. So if there's a third party choice, it inevitably is going to come out of Biden's hide, not out of Trump's, right? Let me provide the evidence for that, which I think will be fairly persuasive. Uh, there's an asymmetry between the two political parties. Put very simply, the Republicans are a much more uniformly conservative party than the Democrats are uniformly a liberal party. You ask Republicans for their ideological self-identification, about three quarters of them say that they're either conservative or very conservative, and about a quarter admit to being either moderate or, or liberal. For the Democrats, it's about 50% who call themselves uh, liberal or very liberal, and the remaining half of the party thinks of itself as moderate or conservative. So they're simply more center-leaning fish in the Democratic pond than there are in the Republican pond, and all of the things being equal, a centrist independent candidacy is bound to have more appeal to more Democrats than to Republicans. Yeah. Damon Linker, I'm old enough to remember 2016 when uh, the uh, Jill Stein candidacy arguably cost Hillary Clinton some key percentage points in Florida and other states, other swing states. So a small third party candidacy, even something like the People's Party or the Green Party, if it's on ballots in enough states, critical states, can make a huge difference. It certainly can. I mean, it always can. But we're in a dynamic now where, in addition to the very uh, strong points Bill was making about the differences between the ideological commitments of the different electorates in the two parties, you also have now the situation of the extreme efficiency of the Electoral College for the Republicans versus the Democrats, where basically to win, Joe Biden needs to beat the Republicans in the popular vote by a few percentage points. It's not like if we get 49%, 49% that Biden can win. If it ends up something like that, the Republican will probably end up winning. And that's before you factor in third party tickets. So that means that even if in public opinion polls, it looks like Biden is slightly ahead, he could still end up losing. And it's much more likely that that will happen for him than that it would go the other way and the Republican would end up winning. And then you factor in the third party tickets weakening the showing for Biden, and then it really does get scary. I mean, there is the Cornell West scenario, which very much could repeat the Jill Stein narrative from 2016. Jill Stein is supporting Cornell West so far. It looks like he might end up on the Green Party ticket. And then the, the no labels threat from the center to center right that we've also talked about. But then there's also RFK, uh, Robert Kennedy Jr., I don't know if he actually would, you know, go beyond the primaries to launch some kind of kamikaze campaign in the general election. But with his name recognition and appeal to the kind of 
quirky, kooky, conspiracy-addled vote out there and appealing to, you know, I guess you could say like the Ithaca, New York farmer's market vote, like (laughs) the kind of people who go to live in college towns and are kind of conspiracy-minded, but not on the right. They are very much on the left, kind of post-hippie culture. There aren't that many of those people around anymore, but again, we're not talking about huge numbers of voters. We're talking about the damage that can be done by one or two percent of the public voting for these candidates. That's a lot of variables. That's potentially three people people sucking up you know votes here and there in different states and there are a number of states where things are going to be very close and you know Jill Stein played an important role in swinging Wisconsin into the Trump category in 2016 all of this makes me very nervous and yes we are all here uh, inclined toward worrying i guess that's uh, maybe one of the taglines for this podcast but it does concern me that the incentives in our political culture now are such that there are, there are a lot of people around who really love the idea of doing this kind of thing largely for the sake of the extraordinary amount of attention that it will bring. And the very fact that one of these candidates could potentially derail Biden could in and of itself you know, show, wow, I'm really going to get a lot of attention. I'm not just Ralph Nader running because I'm the single issue candidate who really wants to advance this cause as you know wrong-headed as that was of him back in 2000 you now have people who you know they believe in what they believe but they also get on a lot of television a lot online they get higher book advances and just online buzz and attention that's very appealing to some people and i worry that we could end up with a few of them around and doing a lot of damage noah there's such a huge gulf between the reasonable sounding things that people, for example, associated with no labels say, and the reality that we face. So here's an example. Joe Manchin said, it is clear that most Americans are exceedingly frustrated by the growing divide in our political parties and toxic political rhetoric from our elected leaders. And he goes on to say, our political discourse is lacking engaged debates around common sense solutions to solve the pressing issues facing our nation, unquote. Well, yes. I mean, who can disagree with that? I understand lots of really well-meaning voters can listen to that and think, wow, that's exactly what this country needs. But if the two major party candidates, you know, were Bob Dole and Bill Clinton, and somebody said, you know, I'm going to run a no labels candidacy that, you know, attempts to bridge the divide, fine. But that's not where we are. I mean, again, it's an existential threat that Donald Trump could get reelected. And I am just, I'm gobsmacked that people don't see it in those terms. And they're sort of la-di-da, you know, let's consider this option of, you know, third parties and so on. What do you think? First of all, I'm not a politics expert, right? But if you look at FDR in World War II when we were facing existential threats, right in the middle of fighting these existential threats with a president who had just boosted our economy a huge amount and had been beloved for a decade, you see that FDR's support starts to drop. He still won pretty comfortably, but his support starts to drop because 
Politics is stubbornly thermostatic in America. Whoever's in power, people will be grumpy at them, no matter who the challenger is. And people get tired of anybody in power. And so it really just... They do. But on the other hand, presidents tend to get reelected most of the time. They do. They absolutely do. And I would put my money on Biden against Trump. But I think that not everybody sees Trump as an existential threat. Most people think of Trump in the context of culture wars. Most people are still thinking of Trump in terms of BLM and crime and abortion and trans whatever and, you know, whatever culture wars. That's how most people think about politics in America, I believe. Economic stuff, to a certain extent, even I think follows that. When people feel like America is divided and they're grumpy about the way things are going in the culture wars, they start to say, oh, the economy's bad, even if it's good. And so I yeah. think we are elite media junkies who just read all the news about what's going on in like Ukraine and Asia and all this stuff and about what's going on in like industrial policy or whatnot. And then most people are just thinking like, well, Trump, he hates the guys that I hate or that I think I hate, even though I've never met them, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that it's unsurprising, given all those baseline factors, that Trump would have a, a decent amount of support. Most people are just pretty low information. It takes them a long time to catch up, and often they never catch up. But that's democracy. If we want to keep Trump out of the White House, we can't just say that he's an existential threat for reasons that we understand that the average person doesn't understand. We can say that all we want, and we should for elite audiences, whatever. But for regular folks, we need to make a regular folks case that Trump is really bad. Kathy, no question that you have to make a different case when you're presenting it to a broad audience. But the thing that's frustrating me right now is that the people who are endangering the next election, or let's say, let's put it bluntly, the people who are threatening Biden's reelection, which is all that stands between us and Trump, arguably, I mean, it's not over, he could still fail to get the nomination, but let's just say he looks likely to get the nomination. But these are elites. These people who are doing this are all elites. I mean, Cornell West is an elite, Joe Manchin, all the people associated with no labels. These are all elites who are who are playing a very dangerous game, arguably. Yeah, I really don't know what they're thinking. And, you know, before I go on to sort of speculate on that, I have my own confession to make, which is that I donated money to No Labels like years ago when it was first founded. And I also wrote a... That's totally fine. You don't yeah. have to say it like it's a sin. I mean, at the time, Bill was involved. I, I mean, wrote a sympathetic article yeah. about it. I wasn't involved in it the way that Bill was, but his involvement certainly was part of what made me interested in the group. But yeah, it just seemed like, uh, you know, this fresh voice again you know, rampant partisanship. And I certainly had no inkling that it could ever end up playing spoiler in an election at a crucial moment. So yeah, I don't really understand the irresponsibility. I can sort of understand in 2016, when a lot of people, including myself, kind of thought, well, you know, even if Trump does get elected, you know, how bad can it be? Well, I think now we know exactly how bad it's right. going to be. <laughs> and worse, you know, I honestly don't even want to think about what a uh, second Trump presidency would be like post-January 6th. It's just unimaginable. So yeah, I don't really understand what goes through the heads of people who, for whatever reason, are prepared to 
increase the chances of that happening. Um, I don't get it. Does Cornell West take the view that it doesn't matter? Because I think in 2016, a lot of people, basically a lot of people on the left took the view that, ah, eh, well, it's all the same. It's the, the elites, the political elites. It doesn't matter if it's Hillary Clinton or Trump. It's the establishment. I mean, can any sane person, not even necessarily left of center, but, you know, non-right wing, take that view? Yeah. I don't think so. I don't want to speculate on whether our democracy can survive another round of Trump, but I'd certainly rather not take that chance. Okay. Bill Galston, you wanted to make another comment. Very briefly, Mona. First of all, you know, to underscore the gravity of the threat from the left, from the Green Party and Cornell West, Jill Stein in 2016 barely got more than 1% of the vote. But her vote total in three key states, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, exceeded mm -hmm. Trump's margin of victory in those three states. So it does not take much you know, to tilt the states that make the difference between electoral college defeat and victory, as those three states would have done for Hillary Clinton in 2016. The second point, just to keep the record straight, I don't know what Joe Manchin is doing. The people who know Joe Manchin well don't know what he's doing. And I certainly don't know what he's doing in general, but I do know what he's doing next Monday in New Hampshire. He's going up there to preside over the release, not of a third party step forward, but of a comprehensive centrist issues agenda. That's the purpose of the meeting New Hampshire next Monday evening. And I know for a fact that there are many in and around no labels who hope very much that one or both of the major parties will take that centrist agenda seriously and perhaps adjust some of its offerings in 2024. I don't know what the odds are that that will happen, but it strikes me that that is a much less suspect venture than advancing a, an independent third-party candidacy. Okay, Bill, two things. First, the choice of venue is very telling, right? They're not just doing this in Washington, D.C. They're not doing it in Ohio. They're doing it in New Hampshire. And so that is like a veiled threat. And I have to also ask, isn't it really pointed toward the Democratic Party? Like, from my point of view, my personal preference, of course, is that the Democratic Party be much more to the center than it currently is. But, I mean, saying we might run a third-party candidacy unless you adopt our centrist policy platform is not a threat, as we've just itemized. To the Republicans. It's only a threat to the Democrats, right? Yeah, although the irony is that Biden's candidacy would probably be strengthened if he did move in that direction. So. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. Then again, you never know. I mean, you know, you could disenchant the most fervent left-wingers who would otherwise vote for Biden. Who knows? But I certainly agree with the point that in politics as in business, it's not the gross, it's the net. Yep. So you do have to look at people you antagonize as well as people you attract. Yeah. Well, we have gone long on this, although it's very important, no regrets. And so I think we will wait until next week to discuss a very important case that came out of uh, Louisiana this week involving 
free speech and what I consider to be a uh, an intemperate judge who has put an injunction on the Biden administration even speaking to social media companies. But we'll try to get to that next week. And for now, I'm going to turn to our highlight or low light of the week, or both if you want. Kathy Young, starting with you. Okay, so I'm actually going to have a highlight and a low light. The highlight for me is the Vilnius-NATO summit. I think it actually went quite well for Ukraine, which is my main area of interest at the moment. Despite getting off to a kind of rocky start, Volodymyr Zelensky posted a tweet that was pretty angry about the lack of a timetable for Ukraine's admission. And then there were some words from Biden administration officials and from the British defense minister. But they actually did manage to smooth it over, I think. On the second day of the summit, there were a lot of positive statements. And I think it was made clear that Ukraine does have a definite path to NATO admission. I think everyone understands it can't be admitted during the war. But I think it was also made very clear that it is seen as a potential member. There's the Ukraine-NATO Council, which is going to coordinate the joint efforts and which Ukraine can convene if it feels like there's enough of an emergency that it needs to do that. Plus, there was the, the very positive G7 commitment to security guarantees for Ukraine. So that's all very good. I think, on the whole, I think it went about as well as it could have. So that's my highlight. The low light is, I think there were some very intemperate people from the pro-Ukraine activist corner who got into a very gratuitous fight with Russian opposition members and specifically supporters of Alexei Navalny, the anti-corruption and pro-democracy activist who has been in prison in really, really terrible conditions for well over a year now, and who's been in a solitary cell for much of that time, a sort of punishment cell, where they basically stick him there for all sorts of tiny infractions. So supporters of Navalny basically put up an exhibit in Vilnius coinciding with the summit to call attention to his plight. And by the way, part of the reason that he got an added sentence on top of the one he had before, part of the reason he's being really viciously persecuted is that he did speak out against the war at the beginning of it. So it's not really even irrelevant to their cause. But there's a number of people who basically feel that any Russian, even an opposition member who is the center of attention right now for even a minute, is sort of taking attention away from Ukraine. They're also upset over statements from years ago where Navalny was initially sort of sympathetic to the Russian claim on Crimea. He's disavowed that long ago. He's made it very clear that he supports not only the restoration of Ukraine's 1991 borders, but reparations for the war and the prosecution of war criminals. And there were some people on Twitter, especially, who were just viciously going after Navalny. There's this ridiculous trope of him being a supposed Kremlin asset, or he's as much as an imperialist as Putin. And it's really just this idea that almost any Russian figure, any Russian activist who in any way claims to be a Russian patriot, which he does, is basically the enemy of Ukraine. I think it's very misguided. And it's not the first time, unfortunately, that um, pro-Ukraine activists have gotten into this tussle with Navalny people. And by the way, a lot of it is not even Ukrainians. It's these very zealous sort of pro-Ukraine 
people in the West who feel like they're more Ukrainian than thou. It was just very ugly and unfortunate and really doesn't add anything to the Ukrainian cause. Thank you. They are well rebuked. Damon Linker. Well, I'm going to have a low light today. Uh, This has to do with public opinion polling in Germany. I did a post for my Substack this week, sort of surveying the state of right-wing populism around a lot of the globe, looking at lots of opinion research about how different right populist parties are doing. And one of the ones that's been doing surprisingly well lately is uh, Alternative for Germany. In the German initials are AFD, Alternative for Deutschland. They are a far-right party. The other parties in Germany have taken a vow to not form a coalition government with them, so they're frozen out. And that has created some difficulties in uh, the last couple of German elections afterwards trying to find parties that can come together to form a government when you're excluding one that at the time, uh, the last time there was a German election, was getting somewhere around 15% of the vote. About a year ago, the AFD had sunk to around 10%, which seemed like pretty good news. But as of a week or so ago, they had hit 20%. And then just about a day after I wrote my post, I saw an Ipsos poll, the newest one, putting the AFD at 22%, which places them only four percentage points behind the Christian Democrats, that's the uh, mainstream center-right party, and a full four percentage points ahead of the SPD, which is the center-left social Democrats who currently lead the German government. This is a really alarming finding. The fact that the AFD has surged from 10% a year ago to 22 now and are only four points behind the lead party in polling is astonishing and extremely concerning for two reasons. One, because at only four points behind, it is at least conceivable that we're going to see a poll coming up in the coming months or weeks in which the AFD is actually the lead party, which means it would be the plurality winner in an election held today, which is very troubling. But then even if that doesn't happen, it's one thing for the other parties to try to freeze out AFD when they're polling at 15, 10%. If they're polling around 20%, then it can become close to impossible for the remaining parties to either find a combination that will give them the numbers to pass or approach 50% support to form a government, or what they end up coming up with as a coalition without the AFD becomes increasingly ideologically incoherent. Say, a coalition that had the uh, CDU, the center-right party, and the Greens on the left would be very hard to hold together, let alone with more uh, marginal parties on the far left. So take that as you will. It's only opinion polls. Things could change a lot. I honestly don't understand completely why why we've seen this surge now, other than Ukraine war exhaustion. But if that is the main reason, that also is its own reason for a bit of ominous feeling, because that would show that increasingly large numbers of the German population are fed up with holding the line on Ukraine's side. So uh, something for listeners to keep in mind and watch. Yeah. 
because we don't have enough to worry about. <laughs> yeah, see, that's but, I told you that's that's our tagline <laughs> here at the podcast. Beg to differ and worry. <laughs> All right. Noah Smith. I always have difficulty with these, uh, the highlights and lowlights, because I'm an optimistic guy. I don't want to give too many lowlights. It's not required. can be all highlight. Right. Okay. Well, but I would say that the highlight is American manufacturing and manufacturing in American allies. And so you've seen, there's like dashboards where you can go to see all the investments that the Inflation Reduction Act and the CHIPS Act have motivated all across the country, and we're actually doing a pretty amazing job of rapidly training up the workforce for these factories. And amazingly, it's going pretty well. The land acquisition is still a problem. Permitting is still a problem. A lot of the factory goods, the things we need to make the factories, are very expensive, and we don't have them in large supply. We need to expand it, so the prices for the stuff is shot up. But at the same time, the factories are going up. And what's interesting is you see a parallel process in our allies. You see a similar process in India and Japan and South Korea and a bunch of places that are not China. And this is what we needed to happen for many years. And it's only happening now, but it is happening now. We are finally starting to reshore manufacturing and hopefully this is only the beginning. So that's a highlight. Another highlight is recent reports are showing much more optimistic forecasts about decarbonization than had been shown before. The Inflation Reduction Act alone, by 2035, should move us close to 50% below peak in terms of our United States emissions. You see similarly optimistic stuff in a number of other countries. And then there's also predictions that if technology continues to improve, we could see this S-curve effect where green energy could basically take over the whole world and countries like India could get rich without ever going through sort of an intermediate fossil fuel stage where they burn a lot of carbon, but they could just jump right to getting rich with renewable energy because renewable energy, solar especially, is really for real. And batteries, these things are for real. They're not gimmicks. They're not things that need to be subsidized. We want to subsidize them just to incentivize faster adoption, but they are going to go to 100% adoption without subsidies in not that long a time, no matter what we do, because the technology just got so good. It's really a story of technological triumph. So there's two highlights. Thank you for that. Um, I can't resist since this is one of my hobby horses, but are you pro-nuclear power? Of course. I'm pro All nuclear right. power. The, what, nuclear power is problematic because it doesn't seem to have a learning curve. That is, the more we build of it, it doesn't get cheaper. It actually gets more expensive the more we build. Well, that's because of the heavy regulation. So that's another issue. Oh. Not entirely. <laughs> what, what it mostly is, is that things that are built on site such as housing and nuclear and and whatever, things that are built on site tend not to have a learning curve no matter what. Like they tend to be pretty flat in terms of price or mining is another good example. We tend not to have much of a scaling effect for mining. It's only things that are built in factories that have these major scaling effects where we can scale up. But we now have modular nuclear reactors that we can build in factories. Well, we don't have them yet. We're scheduled to have them for seven years from now. We should have them. <laughs> so let's come back yeah, in yeah, seven yeah. years. That's not a very long time in the scale of the world. All right. You'll, you'll still have me on the podcast in seven years, right? It will be my pleasure. All right. Bill Galston. Well, I'm not sure you'll have me in seven years. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> the actuarial tables are undecided on that question. If I wanted to quibble with manufacturing optimism, I guess I would wonder why the entire Western world 
cannot manufacture enough artillery shells to keep the Ukrainians supplied at the pace that they are consuming them, which has led us to trouble the world's conscience by shipping them cluster munitions. But, you know, I digress. As is my want, I have two lowlights, you know, one of which will also be a kind of a beg to differ item. First of all, it's my sorry duty to observe that despite urgent pleas from Israel's president and from the principal leaders of the opposition, Prime Minister Netanyahu declined to re-enter negotiations over the first stage of his judicial quote-unquote reform and has decided to ram it through the Knesset. They took their first vote on Monday, and the entire coalition voted for this item, and the entire opposition opposed it. President Herzog then renewed his pleas to re-enter negotiations, and as did the principal opposition parties, and Netanyahu declined and reiterated his determination to force this through before the end of the month. This all but guarantees a return to the kind of nonstop demonstrations that we saw earlier this year. And this is a real threat to Israel's unity and long-run security and prosperity. In my trip to Israel, I did not meet anyone, not even the soberest of observers, who wasn't deeply worried as never before. So that's low light number one. Low light number two, which is also a beg to differ item, has to do with President Biden's conduct at Vilnius. No one was expecting that Ukraine would be invited to join NATO in the middle of a war. The fundamental question was, what would the alliance say about the sequence of events after the war ends? And there, President Biden could not have been more grudging. He and the German leader were the real outliers within the alliance, tugging against any clear declaration of where Ukraine would stand on that question after the war ends. And the president even went out of his way to identify conditions that Ukraine would need to make on democratization and corruption, et cetera. This was the worst possible moment, it seems to me, to underscore those concerns. And by the way, I think it would be perfectly reasonable to give Ukraine a lot of credit for standing up and fighting the Russians, which is, after all, the principal purpose of NATO, and perhaps going a little bit easier on some of the side conditions. So I was deeply disappointed by the outcome of Vilnius, which would have been much better had it not been for Biden's weighing in so heavily on the other side. Thank you for that. I uh, was actually not that focused on what Biden had done, and I completely agree with you. All right, I have two highlights. So the first really quick is that the FDA this week announced that it has finally, finally approved an over-the-counter birth control pill, which is so, so welcome and so late. Many other countries around the world have long since been selling birth control pills over-the-counter, 
It has been endorsed for years by the American College of Gynecologists and Obstetricians and by the American Medical Association and various other organizations, and yet the FDA dragged its feet. So finally, which is a great boon for not just women, but everyone. So hooray for that. And I also want to take note, since we're talking about manufacturing, Noah Smith, I want to take note that there is a manufacturer who is hurting and I couldn't be more delighted. That manufacturer is Mike Lindell, the MyPillow guy. There's a story this week that he is auctioning off hundreds of pieces of equipment and subleasing his manufacturing spaces after what he calls a quote, massive, massive cancellation, because see, there are a bunch of stores that don't want to carry his products anymore because he is a insurrectionist, election-denying, lying Trumpist. And, you know, accountability can be, well, I won't say the word, but accountability can be tough. Uh, But when it happens to somebody like that, it's a cause for celebration. And so just wanted to uh, take note of that. And with that, I want to thank our guest, Noah Smith, who writes the Substack No Opinion. And thank Kathy Young for sitting in today and my regular panel. Also, our producer, Katie Cooper, our sound engineer, Jonathan Siri, And, of course, our wonderful listeners. And we will return next week as every week.